This is Solid Foundation Ministries with Dr. Pierre Couvert, building solid foundations through sound Bible teaching. Welcome back to Solid Foundation Ministries. What I have to say today will very likely be controversial, and it may offend some of you. I ask you to listen through to the end and study it out for yourselves. We claim to be Bible believers, yet we are more likely to follow the precepts of men uh, in the area I'm going to deal with today than we are with the uh, precepts and examples of God's Word. I seriously doubt that any would argue that all is well in modern Christianity. You don't have to look very far to see that things are not as they should be. We have a tendency to say we're living in the last days and we should expect to see what we're seeing. The following passage is used as a basis for this idea. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 2-4, through it says, Preach the word. Be instant in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and doctrine. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but after their own lust shall they heap to themselves teachers having itching ears, and they will turn away their ears from the truth, and shall be turned unto fables. The Bible does tell us that uh, what we see today is what we should expect to see in the last days, but have you ever asked yourself why it is that way? It's not simply because God wants things to go south. It's because God's people have departed from the teaching found in his word. Listen to carefully to this next verse. But he answered and said, it is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. That's Matthew 4.4. 4. I want you to notice that it says, Man shall live by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. We don't have the right to pick and choose which parts of God's word we're going to live by. Every part is important, and every part must be applied. I realize that there are parts that don't apply to every person in every situation, but even those parts are there for our instruction. We, for example, don't stone people for adultery anymore because Jesus set the example by showing mercy to the woman caught in adultery. He did not justify her sin, nor should we. Remember, he told her to sin no more. From this incident we learn about mercy, but we also learn not to condone sin when we do show mercy. Let me get back on subject. I believe that the reason we see more compromise in modern Christianity is we have stopped following God's precepts. There is one major area that I will get to a little bit later that I believe is the main cause for the compromise among Bible-believing people. Before I get to it, I want to look at what God expects of His people. In 1 Corinthians 4, verses 1 and 2, it says, Let a man so account of us as of the ministers of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required in stewards that a man be found faithful. We, as the children of God, are also His stewards. This means that we are responsible for caring for His work on earth. We decide how we are to use and disperse the mysteries of God. We are to do so according to the pattern established by God. We are not to come up with our own way of doing His work. A faithful steward follows the instructions of his master. 
God set up a pattern that says his work is to be done through and under the authority of a local New Testament church. We have many Christian ministries that have no connection with the local church. They are parasites. They're living off the money that should be used in the, uh, in the local church to get God's work done. 1 Thessalonians 5.22 tells us that we are to avoid the appearance of evil. Yet many Christians cannot be de distinguished from the lost world. They look like the world, they do what the world does, and they go where the world goes. There is little preaching against this conduct in any specific manner. We may hear preaching that says we are not to be like the world, but seldom do we hear what it means. Those who do not abstain from the appearance of evil are accepted as members in good standing in our churches. Folks, it didn't used to be that way. I told you that I would deal with a major area where we have departed from God's precepts, and it will upset a lot of you, but pay attention and study it for yourselves. I'm sure if you do, you will find that I'm right. When I look at the example of how people were brought to salvation in the scriptures, I don't see anything that resembles the way we do it today. What we do today is patterned after the sales pitches of door-to-door -door salesmen. We are taught that the first thing we are to do is ask a lost person something like, Do you know for sure that if you died today you would go to heaven? I ask you, where do you find this in the scriptures? If the prospect doesn't convince the soul winner that he does know for sure, the next question is something like, Would you like me to take five minutes of your time and show you from the Bible how you can know for sure? Again, I ask you, Show me this in the scriptures. It just isn't there. It was never done that way. We really need to stop coming up with new pitches and new programs in our soul winning efforts. Instead, we need to go to the scriptures and find out how it is done correctly. The Great Commission tells us to go, so we should go. We are told uh, what we are to do when we go, and it's not selling something. In Matthew 28, 18-20, it says, And Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore, and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. The first thing we need to notice in this passage is that the results are not brought about by our power. They're brought about by the power of God. The first thing we're to do as we go out is teach all nations. But what are we to teach them? Of course we're to teach them the gospel. But remember, gospel means good news. Teaching the gospel without first teaching why it is good news is not uh, what this is talking about. The gospel is only good news to those who understand their standing before a holy God. Until they understand God's holiness and their sinfulness, they will not understand why they are condemned in the first place. It's not enough to get them to admit that they are sinners. Most people will do that. There must be a true conviction of sin that brings about something called godly sorrow in their hearts. We learn this from Second Corinthians chapter 7 verses 9 through 10 it says I now rejoice not that you may be made sorry 
but that ye sorrowed to repentance, for ye were made sorry after a godly manner, that ye might receive damage by us in nothing, for godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation, not to be repented of, but the sorrow of the world worketh death. Godly sorrow works repentance not uh, to salvation, not to be repented of, but the world's sorrow works death. No one who has godly sorrow will ever repent or turn back from his coming to Christ for salvation. It doesn't mean that he will never get off course, but he's never going to turn his back on God and say, I don't believe in you anymore because he has come to that point of godly sorrow and true repentance. It tells us that we are to go to all nations. This is why we send missionaries throughout the world and why we also go to our neighborhoods because they're all part of all nations. As we go, we're to persuade those whom we teach. Knowing therefore the terror of God, we persuade men. That's according to Second Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 11. You can't persuade people who know nothing of the God of the Bible in a five-minute gospel presentation. Sometimes, when there has been some sowing and watering in a person's life, you may be able to pick the fruit in such a short time, but to take someone from knowing nothing about Jehovah God to the understanding of their need for salvation will take a lot more effort than that. It says, knowing therefore the terror of God. This indicates that our goal is to instill the fear of God in them, and you'll see as we examine some messages in the Bible that that's exactly what was being done by the preachers in the New Testament and even in the Old Testament. Since the Bible uses a harvest of wheat as an example of harvesting souls, let me share with you something about bringing wheat to harvest. There's a lot of work that goes into bringing any crop to harvest, and most of that work is done before any uh, effort is made to uh, harvest the crop. When a wheat farmer decides to plant a, a crop of wheat in a new field, he first surveys the land to see what must be done before he can sow the seed. Are there any trees or rocks that need to be removed? There are certainly weeds that have to be taken care of. The next thing he does is bring in a bottom plow and turn the ground over. This loosens the soil so the seed can put down their roots. Next he brings in a harrow plow to break up the clods. He will then rake the ground so there are little grooves that the seed can lie in while germinating. He then sows the seed. The next part of the process is the longest. The seed must be watered and allowed to mature. Once the crop is ready for harvest, the farmer brings in a combine to harvest the wheat and separate it from the chaff. This is the shortest part of the process and requires more laborers because it must be done quickly. In modern soul winning, we're trying to do the whole process of bringing things into the harvest, including the harvest, with the combine. A combine is not a plow, and it does not sow seed, nor does it water. It only harvests. If there is no plowing, sowing, and watering, the combine is useless. As we try to bring people to Christ, we must first understand where they are and what they need. If you look at Peter's message on the day of Pentecost and Paul's message on Mars Hill, you will see that the process was entirely different because the soil of the hearts of the people were different. 
I want to take a look at the two sermons that we find in the Bible that brought the most people to Christ. The first one you're familiar with. It is Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost. For the sake of time, I will only look at those parts of this sermon that had the most to do with people getting saved. In Acts chapter 2, verses 23 through 24, it says, Ye men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs, which God did by him in the midst of you, as ye yourselves also know, him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, ye have taken, and by wicked hands have crucified and slain, whom God hath raised up, having loosed the, the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be holden of it. Remember that Peter is talking to the Jews who knew about the holiness and righteousness of God. He didn't need to deal with these issues. He did, however, remind them that God had put his hand of approval upon Jesus of Nazareth and that they had crucified him. He reminded them uh, that he had risen from the dead and that they were well aware of it. In verse 36 it says, Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made this same Jesus whom ye have crucified, both Lord and Christ. He ended his message by telling them that God had made that same Jesus, both Lord and Christ, in other words, Messiah. You can read the whole sermon for yourselves and you will see that there is no mention of the love of God or the benefits of salvation for the sinner. There's no invitation. There's only condemnation for their evil deeds. They were not even asked if they wanted to be saved. But there was a response and we find it in Acts 2, 2 verses 37 through 38. Now when they heard this, they were pricked in their hearts and said unto Peter and to the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said unto them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remissions of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. The result of Peter's message was that the Holy Spirit brought conviction to the hearts of them, and they asked what they needed to do to be saved. It was only after this conviction that Peter told them how to be saved. He told them that they needed to repent, that is to turn from their dead works and trust in Christ. And then as a sign that they had done that, they were to be baptized. Baptism is not necessary for salvation. It is the fruit of obedience because of, or in other words, for their salvation. You know the rest of the story. 3,000 souls were saved and added unto the church at Jerusalem. Most people think that this is the sermon in the Bible that brought the most people to salvation. It is not. There is another, which is much shorter and more to the point, that brought many more to salvation. It's found in the book of Jonah in verses, or chapter 3, verses 4 and 5. And Jonah began to enter into the city a day's journey, and he cried and said, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. So the people of Nineveh believed God, and proclaimed a fast, and put on sackcloth uh, from the greatest of them even to the least of them. This sermon is only eight words long. It said, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Yet the whole town 
believed Nineveh was a great city that took about three days to cross. It's estimated that the population of the city at that time was about one million people. I'm not sure that every single person believed, but I am certain that the vast majority of them from the king on down did. There's no mention of the love of God or of his mercy and forgiveness. There's no mention of the benefits of salvation. There was only a stern message of condemnation. Like on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit used this message to bring conviction into the hearts of the people. They responded and believed God. I might add that this was not the goal of the preacher, Jonah. He had in mind to preach a message and then to see uh, Nineveh destroyed. That's all he wanted, and God had to deal with him about it later. The point I want to make with these two examples is that it is deep plowing of hard preaching that prepares the soil of the hearts of men for the seed. These two sermons had nearly instantaneous results. This was only because the people already understand who the God that was confronting them was. Most of the compromise we see in churches today, especially Baptist churches, comes from the deviation from God's principles in soul winning. Those who are using the modern methods have their hearts in the right place, but they are using man's method rather than God's. Why is this so? These people love God and His Word, they really want to do what is right and they want to see souls saved. They are good people with good motives. Well, how did this happen? Well, it all started before many of the people doing this today were even born. It was a slow process that came to maturity sometime in the 1970s. Church size became the most important thing to most preachers. To have a big church, you had to win lots of souls. We need to understand that the gospel is offensive to a lost world. In Romans 9.33 it says, As it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone, a rock of offense, and whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. And then in Galatians 5.11 it says, And I, brethren, if I yet preach circumcision, why do I suffer persecution? Then is the offense of the cross ceased. The rock of offense is Jesus Christ, and the message of the cross is something that's offensive to people, and if there's no offense, that means the message is ended. Preachers, not willing to offend, started preaching positive messages. They reworded their presentations of the message we are to take to the loss so that it would not offend. Some have gone further than others, but I know few who follow the biblical example for reaching the lost. Almost everyone starts with, do you want to go to heaven when you die? The Bible message is, you stand condemned before a holy God. The cry became, win the lost at any cost. It sounds good, but it's totally contrary to what the Bible teaches. We cannot pay the price of compromise of God's principles in winning souls. If we do, we will get compromised Christians at the very best, and mostly they will be lost professors. The present soul winning methods are designed to get professions of faith or to get the sinner to pray a prayer. Many of those professions that we get today are nothing but empty professions. People pray a prayer, profess to believe in Christ, and then within a short time are no longer found in church. I might remind you that on the day of Pentecost, all 3,000 continued it steadfastly in the Apostles' Doctrine and in the other church functions. 
Another result of their desire to have big churches is a departure from the real purpose of the church. Ephesians chapter 4 verses 11 through 14 tell us what the church is all about when it's assembled. It says that he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ that Henceforth we be no more children tossed to and fro and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the slight of men and cunning craftiness, whereby they lie in wait to deceive. The main purpose of the church is not soul winning. It is the perfecting of the saints or the maturing of the saints for the work of the ministry. Obviously the work of the ministry does include reaching the lost for Christ, but that's not all of it. The work of the ministry according to the Great Commission, it includes at least three things. It includes teaching all nations, getting them into the church through baptism, and teaching them to observe all things that Christ has commanded us. The preacher's job is more than just preaching the gospel and encouraging people to come out to the soul-winning activities of the church. In Titus chapter 2 and verse 1 it says, But speak thou things which become sound doctrine. Now this is to a pastor and is telling him what his job is. Sound doctrine includes teaching them how they are to live their lives before a lost world so they can be the witnesses they are called to be. Remember, we are called to be witnesses. This means we are to something different. And as a result, we have a testimony to share with the world. It includes not only teaching them what to believe, but why we believe it. Pastors, can your people defend the doctrine of the deity of Christ when confronted by a Jehovah's Witness? Can they show a Mormon uh, why there is only one true God and that man cannot become God? Can they show a Pentecostal why they cannot lose their salvation and why speaking in tongues is not for today? When the Calvinist tries to convince them that not everyone can be saved, can they show him from the scriptures why he is wrong? We see those in Baptist churches today being blown around by every wind of doctrine because they really don't know what sound doctrine is. I have talked to pastors and I've been in many churches and and many of them are not really teaching doctrine today to their people. It used to be when I first became a Baptist that we never heard of discipling and discipleship classes because we didn't need them. It was done from the pulpit. The Baptist doctrine was taught. Baptist history was taught. These were all from the normal preaching services of the church. Today that's being left out and this is the reason we see so many going off on tangents and being blown around with every wind of doctrine. As we saw, there were four different kinds of preachers given to the local church to uh, perfect the saints for the work of the ministry. There were apostles. Now, I believe the apostles were missionaries. Don't have time to get into that today, but I know that there are those in the Bible, in the New Testament, who are called apostles, like Barnabas, who was not one of the apostles of Jesus Christ. So we have two types of apostles, the apostles of Jesus Christ and the apostles of the churches, which I believe are missionaries. But like I say, I don't have time to get into that. Then we have the prophet whose ministry is warning us to stay on track, warning us to do what we're supposed to do, warning us to be faithful, and warning us of the dangers that are on the horizon. And we don't see much of that today either. And then there's the evangelist who is specially gifted 
for the work of taking the gospel to the lost. Now let me tell you something, folks. We're all to be involved in evangelism. The pastor is told to do the work of an evangelist and, and, and things like that. So we're all involved in evangelism, but there are certain people that are gifted for that. And then there's the pastor-teacher. The pastor's job is to teach the people the doctrines of the Word of God. He's to be there to help them when they are in trouble, to, to uh, uh, comfort them in, in, in hard times, and, and just to guide them in a general way. I think he has the hardest job of all. But they're all there for the purpose of bringing us into the unity of the faith. That means all believing the same thing. We should not have every wind of doctrine being taught in every um, every different church, but also within the church. We have people who totally disagree one with another. And our goal is to make us live up to our name as Christians, which means to be Christ-like or to be little Christ. And until we get to that point in our churches, we're going to see things going worse and worse as, as uh, we see it today. Today, Christians don't understand that the way they live their lives is affecting what's happening in Washington, D.C., they don't understand that because, you see, we don't have the testimony we used to have. We don't shame a lost world into living reasonably righteous lives. We just don't do that anymore. It's not done. We're not going to see an end to the compromise that we see all around us until we realize how important uh, the job of the church is to prepare the saints and to bring them into unity of doctrine. That's, that's so important. And uh, all of the different beliefs that are out there make the law say, oh, you can just get anything from the Bible. So it's time that we realize that we've got to get back to doing things God's way. And it starts by making sure the people we get saved are really getting saved. There should be a change in their life. If we don't see 2 Corinthians 5.17 in the lives of, uh, of the new converts, something is dreadfully wrong. Of course, that verse says that we're new creatures in Christ, and it tells us that old things are passed away and all things are become new. And if there's not that kind of change in a person's life, I maintain that their salvation was not real. And I think that it's proving itself out in the fruit of our, uh, of our evangelistic efforts. And that's why we have the compromise. We don't want to offend because we want bigger churches and bigger churches and bigger churches. Bigger churches are not where it's at. What, where it's at, folks, is in faithful churches and faithful Christians. That's what matters. Nothing else really matters at all. So uh, we need to get back to this. When we get back to making the main thing in our churches is changed lives in, among Christians, a visible difference between our people and the world until we get to the point where Christians don't go the same places uh, the lost world goes, don't do the same thing the lost world does, don't talk like the lost world, don't, don't laugh at dirty jokes, don't use God's name in vain or other substitutes for that. Until we get back to that, we can be sure, absolutely certain, that things are going to continue to go worse and worse in our country and in the world. Now, the Bible does predict that this is going to happen. But we don't have to be part of causing it to happen. We can get ourselves back to God's word and start doing what we can do. And at least in our little corner of the world, we can see a difference. Is there enough difference in your life that people can tell that you're a Christian? Can they see from just watching the way you live your lives, the way you talk, uh, what you do, the way you dress, uh, the places that you frequent and things like this to know that, that you've got something they don't have? 
until there is there's no way that they're going to want what you have you're going to have to have something that shows them that what you have is better than what they have when you go through a crisis do you show a peace and a calmness that that uh, shows your assurance in God's provision and knowing that he's going to take care of you through through it all whatever it may be is your life really different the Bible says, as I've told you before, that we're new creatures when we're saved. And a new creature doesn't act like an old creature. But when I look at the Christians that I see in churches today, and I'm talking about good, fundamental, Bible-believing Baptist churches. When I look at the Christians in those churches, um, I see them in church. They're all dressed up nice and fancy, and they look nice, and they talk right and everything else. But then I run across them at Walmart or, or someplace else out in the world, and they look just like the world. I've seen women and that come to church and they're always dressed nice and modestly and things and then I see them out in the world and they're in short shorts. Folks, it ought not to be that way. Uh, Do we have uh, tattoos all over ourselves and piercings and things like this. Now, most of the people in the circles that we run in don't have those things unless they had them before they got saved, but there are a lot of them that have them after they got saved. Folks, there has to be something different, and until there is, this world will just continue to wax worse and worse. Well, folks, that's about all the time I have today, so uh, come back next week and I'll have another Bible message for you. You have been listening to Solid Foundation Ministries from Lenore, North Carolina. Dr. Kuvert has 35 years in the ministry as a former missionary and pastor. He is available for revivals and various conferences on missions, Bible, Baptist heritage, and the family. To find out more, go to our website, solidfoundationministries.com, or call 828-244-6505. Remember, the Christian life is not about you. It's about God receiving the glory.